to another episode of the Whiteness in America podcast. This is episode number 14. It's a Minnesota episode number two, or Minnesota number two. My name is Tom Bell. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host. Hey, this is Joshua Trinidad checking in. How are y'all doing? Hopefully everybody's well. We're pretty excited to be doing these Minnesodes, and uh, hopefully you're enjoying them so far. So we're happy to be back. They're meaty. They're trying to be meaty. Plus, lots of meat, very little time. We know we're busy people. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be uh, bringing interviews back to folks, too, in the future. We've got some, uh, I think, some pretty exciting uh, interviews coming up, hopefully, uh, in the next couple weeks, months. So that'll be good. But uh, we want to bring these to you. So today we're going to talk briefly about um, an update from last week's discussion on um, the international student visas and the Trump administration decision on that. And then uh, we'll jump right into, uh, we'll, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the decision to bring people back to schools and, and the push to bring people back to schools. But we want to dive into that and the three major options that our districts are going around between online, completely online, completely face-to-face and hybrid and, and taking a critical perspective of those. And then um, And then we'll talk a little bit about the, football team in Washington, D.C., finally changing their name um, after years and years and years of pressure. So we'll talk a little bit about what that means and and and, and, and take a look at that. So we've got a jam-packed yeah. episode today. Uh, Josh, before we get into it, how's life? Life is good. Um, you know, as we were just talking about before we hit record, um, or was recording, was, uh, you know, just the return back to, to education for PK-20 and what that's looking like for all institutions. And so today I went back and um, started planning for the school year and I was sweating and not because it's hot, because I was freaking out. So yeah, um, yeah, not a good experience today, not a good way to start the 2021 school year. That's the thing too, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as we get into it, but like every year there's that buzz that you feel as an educator, that excitement of like the possibilities that the year could bring. You're talking about new ideas. You might be implementing new curriculum. You might have new teachers or faculty or staff. Like there's an energy. And I feel like right now that energy is just scared shitless. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how um, are you, how are you, how are you feeling about everything currently? um, uh, Mid July. Most of our program, our courses in education are online. We have students going out into the field though, we're still trying to figure that out, and I've had a few students reach out to me and say, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little, now that this is getting real, and there's you know a month left before school starts, I'm feeling a little nervous. So I'm feeling a little nervous for them and trying to figure out what's the right thing to do um, to make sure that they're not having to delay their career, but also give them experiences that are going to be helpful and also find districts that are going to you know work with us on this. So um yeah, we can talk a little bit about that. I have a funny story before we jump in. So I, I don't like to shave, um, which is why I have a beard. And yeah. Um, yeah, and I hadn't shaved in a while. And this morning mm-hmm. I, I got up and I was like, I'm going to shave today. Jumped in, shaved, took a shower, came out of the bathroom. My daughter, Scarlett, was sitting there and she's like, Daddy, I thought you were going to shave today. But clearly my shaving, like I, it was bad, but it, it was that bad. Looked better, but it still looks really like bushy. I saw a picture of myself that was taken today too. And I was like, oh, we need yeah. until I shaved. And I spent like a good 10 minutes shaving. <laughs> like I had a, a, an 
an earwig in my beard the other day that I was yeah. on the lawn and it fell out and like <laughs> so I know it was time that it needed and who knows how long that earwig yeah. been there like it could have been here since COVID came out in March I really oh, don't know shit. So. oh my what about a uh, baby just taking a number three to it <laughs> I, I like, to, I like to keep it around a, like an eight you know wow yeah that's like yeah. that's like the top of my head anyways yeah so anyway <laughs> um so that was my fun fun today in the house yeah so. now my daughter's always trying to get me to shave she's like your face is still not clean i was like it is she's like but you still have hair on it i was like yeah i'm working on it yeah, i'm working on it so yeah anyways let's dive right in right um so yeah. last week we, we talked briefly about the administration the, the federal government's trump administration's push for all schools to open that was pk-12 higher ed and they were finding leverage points to push institutions to open, right? So PK-12, it was funding, direct funding, and then higher ed, it was um, really pushing on international students, which for a lot of our universities is a, is a, is a sizable population. Um, and so after being threatened by several universities with lawsuit, which was led by MIT and Harvard, I think they were leading the way on this, the, pres the, the president and the... the, the um, Trump administration backpedaled and um, basically said, well, we're going to go back to the status quo. When they were approached um, for comment, they just basically said, yep, the report's correct. We're, yeah. we're going to move back to the status quo. So I just wanted to bring that back into the conversation real quick. Any thoughts right. on that, Josh? Or you have, you know, I think it's it's a win, right, for those of us yeah. that wanted to support our international students. And, and you know, it, it seemed like it was more than just a, we're going to push higher ed to open. It was going to be a another way to limit right. folks that don't that were aren't that weren't born here to leave right so right yeah yeah i think it's this constant tennis match that um that trump is playing literally by himself you know it's like something gets shot down or doesn't go his way and then he reacts the following three or four days later and he feels like well if i didn't win that then I'm going to try to do this. And, and I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it all settles out to be okay sometimes, but like usually it just gets worse, you know? And yeah. so I, that's why I feel like he's just playing a game by himself. And the rest of us are just kind of watching and shaking our heads like, dude, what are you doing? Like, this is so bad. I mean, I'm just going to blatantly say there are certain populations that are definitely being targeted by this administration decisions and practices and international students is definitely one. And so that's something that I'm, I was happy to see, you know, my institution um, joined into the lawsuit. I was happy to see that and, um, you know, us take a stance for once, which was really nice to see, um, you know, partially, I think it was financially motivated, but, um, you know, it was the right thing too. So, uh, you know, um, that was good to see. Yeah, but I, I I think you know it's it's just really interesting to watch. And, you know, I I've been telling a lot of friends this. I said I can't wait for the Trump movie to come out. Like when this is all over, and we're all gonna sit down watching this like amazing movie, probably a Scorsese. You think it'll be like Tiger uh, King? I never watched that, but do you think it'll be like? like... <laughs> I mean, it should be, <laughs> you know, a fake Tiger King. Uh, you know, but. But we're going to sit down and watch this movie, and it's just going to be like, wow, I can't believe we lived through that. you know. And when you talk about targeting specific populations, it's like we forget that, yeah, gosh, these four years, he's done a lot of damage pretty damn quickly. <laughs> and yeah. 
Um, it's just a, it's it's just crazy to reflect on, you know. And and that was one of the things I was going to ask you too is like, you know, in your position um, at your institution, what what kind of ebbs and flows have you noticed as far as like a pattern with Trump? Like, we you know, first it was like the wall, and then it was something else, and then it was like, let's put everybody in cages. Like, you know, how how is that affecting your institution as you're as you're seeing it? A lot of what we see happening is you see this performative thing going on. So you'll see institutions take a stand with language, like they'll they'll add a, an element to their diversity statement, or they'll send out a message like they did with Black Lives Matter, um, or they'll you know develop some programming that will stay on the surface that looks like they're doing anything, but they won't really fund stuff. That actually makes a difference or support students or change their practice and i think i think institutions of higher ed are being painted by you know the president said it in that address like we're indoctrinating folks faculty are getting together and doing this liberal indoctrination i can't even get faculty to agree on like what we should call a class even though we all know what the class is about but like it takes three hours for us to decide yeah. the name of a like <laughs> There's no way that we right. can get together on a, a schema of a liberal a doc, uh, indoctrination. So, like, yeah. I think one, it's we're battling that pers that that image, and two, we're battling. I think on a some level, and I don't mean to use the term battling, but like we're we're challenged by what is the value of higher ed anymore. And I think folks, because we have this system of education that exists, that is. I'm going to learn this so I get an A, so I can do the next thing. And then I'm going to learn this so I get an A, so I can do the next thing. And I'm going to learn this so I get an A, so I can get into this right. college. And when I get into this college, I'm going to go to these classes, and they're going to tell me what I need to know, and then I'm going to take the test, and then I'm going to pass the test so I did a degree so right. I can get a job. It's all tied back right. to the economy, and I think that's problematic. So yeah. I think – I don't know. I didn't really answer your question. That was a really good way of being no. initiative, I suppose. But <laughs> I think the financial elements of – of what's going on have been pretty problematic. And so um, we're not investing in schools. We're not investing in higher education. The um, the worth and the value of higher education has degraded. We haven't done a good job advocating for what we do or our product. Right, um, right. And so there's a lot of that going on. And I think that that's part of this too. So yeah, great question. I don't know. I mean, you're an adjunct professor well, still in some places and you teach and yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think the financial uh, investment is the pattern that we're seeing from the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, the stimulus money that came in, you know, he, I, you know, he wanted his name on that check for everybody. Mm -hmm. So they had to specially print these checks out for them, for this guy. And now he's like, you know what, you all aren't, uh, you know, treating me well. I don't know if there's going to be another stimulus now. And again, it's just like very tennis game by himself were very reactive very just like um t temper tantrum style of leadership that should be a style of leadership temper tantrum when people ask like what, what's your style oh i'm temper tantrum oh, what i think it's called that? white man syndrome white man oh, leadership. White syndrome. <laughs> yeah. don't question me i will yell at you yeah um i will belittle you i will take you yeah. down <laughs> I don't care yeah. about your humanity. Like, yeah, yeah. I think that's the colonized, colonized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I guess that style. is a leadership yeah. style. Yeah, it's called yeah. colonizer. Yeah, it's colonizer. Uh, he's totally embodying that. Uh, but we do see it in the way that you know he, where he puts his money, 
and and the way that he funds our nation. So it's very yeah. true. Yeah, and so I, and you know that kind of leads into our our main meaty topic today. Um, hopefully, we don't get sued by Arby's by talking about meat. <laughs> um, we wanted to take a quick break and thank all of our listeners for tuning in and sending us great feedback and all the love and support we've been getting for this show as we continue to evolve our practice. In the last episode, we asked people to send us feedback or thoughts about how they're disrupting whiteness or challenging whiteness on a daily basis or having difficulty doing that uh, so Josh and I can address it. In a future episode, we're going to bring on some panelists to talk about how they disrupt whiteness on a daily basis and some of the struggles they have. In that episode, we're hoping to bring your voice, our listener voice, into that experience as well. So if you have questions for these folks, if you have feedback for us, or if you have general thoughts you'd like us to add to the conversation, you can email us at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. Again, that email is whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. <laughs> our main topic today is, is, is this concept of reopening, particularly K-12 schools. Um, you know, there's a lot of buzz about this going around in the education world. Parents are concerned. Communities are talking about it. You know, what's going to happen to what's the impact on the economy? What's the impact on the children? What's the impact on the teachers? Thinking about like, how do I get to, how do how does the economy stay running? Yeah. So Betsy DeVos came out last week and basically said, you know, schools are, will, will reopen face to face. This is must happen. And then in interviews, she doubled down on that. And then mm -hmm. made a claim, well, it's not really that big a deal. Only 0.202% of kids will be negatively harmed or killed. And that turns out to be around 15,000 humans. Right. 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 So, I mean, we've already lost a lot of humans to this disease. And so we're now saying, well, opening schools and the, keeping the economy afloat is worth about 15,000 kids. Not to mention yeah. teachers, staff. Right. Um, you know, parents that will be like, you know, we, this is already starting to impact other things. And so we've seen childcare centers now starting to shut down our state's capital in Lansing that has about 120 kids. They have some cases going on and that's shutting down in Florida. I read a report, something like one out of three kids that's being tested right now is test positive for COVID. Oh that's my God. Tested. Not, not one out of three kids in the state, but one out of three kids being tested. So that's a 33% positive rate like so the, yeah. the numbers are alarming right and so that only right. goes up when you start bringing people in closer environments so our urban spaces where you have a lot more right. people living more closely together it's more more ability for that to spread quickly um yeah. you know so so i thought you know as we were talking about prepping for this we've already had kind of the discussion about opening and what that impact is but let's talk about the the things that our schools are being faced with these decisions right so yeah. School is happening for some reason. Um, people are worried about kids, quote unquote, falling behind. And again, that's a very colonized frame of like, well, I don't even know what that means, falling behind. Like, yeah. Right. Um, we want our kids to learn. We want our kids to socialize. We want them to have spaces where they're being created. But like, we also want our kids not to die. Yeah. So there's the face to face, uh, which is in, in person learning all the time. There's the hybrid model where you have. Some kids coming to campus one day or the schools one day and then at home another day and then another group coming in, so a blended version, and then you have 100% online virtual. What are your initial thoughts before we dig into that, Josh? Well, um, I'll, I can kind of speak from the lens of Denver Public Schools here. Um, 
So yesterday they sent out a video for principals and assistant principals to to watch and to start planning for the return of students. And even just seeing planning for the return just makes my skin crawl. And it was just interesting in the presentation of the video, just watching um, the individuals presenting the information and it, they didn't seem like phased or like what they were, what was coming out of their mouth was um, harmful. Mm. And never once did they ever say anything like, I know this sounds ridiculous, but this is what we're going to have to do. But I know a lot of us are thinking like, this is ridiculous. Um, so here's the deal. So this is what they told us. If a student becomes, um, if they if they catch the Rona and they're in class, they have to quarantine along with their cohort of that of the class plus the teacher. Now, that one student can float up to a max of four cohorts in a day. That's the max. Well, every cohort that that student's been in, all those students have to quarantine for 14 days and, right. and the teachers that taught that student. So quick math, you know, we have 500 kids that are going to come back. Um, you know, a kid floats in those cohorts. I mean, let's say like five kids become positive with COVID. Um, we're down to like a third of our school quarantining in like a week or two. Yeah. So, you, you know, the, 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 the problem here is, is like, it's not the plan. The, the plan sucks. First of all, it's not the plan. It's the, it's the idea that we're even going to attempt this at this point. I cannot yeah. believe we're going to actually attempt this. It's, it's like jumping off a cliff with no parachute. It's like, well, I, I hope we hit something soft. That's, that's basically the planning model. Yeah, so we're talking strictly right now about the face-to-face, -face and, and, and that's really what I think, you know, there are, you know, there are some districts, and even some districts that I think are, have fewer students um, that don't have a lot of cases in their town, that don't have a lot of concern now, are still going to be hit like hit you know so i'm thinking about the flu right mm. so the flu is right. um you know i'm not a doctor i mean i am a doctor but i'm not a doctor. <laughs> um i don't know what the, the the difference is in in terms of the the infectability of someone that has the flu, the contagion, if you will, of someone that has the flu versus the coronavirus. What I do know is the coronavirus is very, very, it's easy to catch, right? It can float for a period of time in, in poorly circulated areas, which is a highly percentage of our schools. The flu still happens in these rural schools, and it right. will wipe out, like, an entire class. Right. Right? So you have that in a building, where student, you know, I, I just, like you said, I don't see, particularly in middle school and high school, where you have students basically going throughout the entire school on a day, this lasting long. And, you know, I think the face-to-face -face is really going to impact. So let's talk about the negative impact right now. I don't see any positives with this model. Like, I don't think it really benefits no. anyone. If, if, if anyone, if anything, it benefits um, our, our more well-resourced schools in suburban areas 
Right. Uh, but even then, I think it still is they're at some point they're going to run into an issue like you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you're essentially sending teachers and kids in to test out a theory. Yeah. Without any evidence that it will work, right? So, yeah. So I think face to face is problematic, and I really think it hurts our our. Um, districts that have been systemically negatively resourced that have right. very little support authorities to um, have the type of actual school space that is mm -hmm. quality for learning, you know. Right. Um, yeah. And I just I can't think of a positive for the face to face. Can right. you? Yeah. No. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, that we were talking about prior to this. Is, <clears throat> You know what? What's mo what's the motivating factor behind students going to school face to face right now? And as the Trump administration has made clear over and over that what matters is our economy, and that's the one thing that Trump has been leaning on, and that's all he really has left to talk about in his presidency before he's done. And so he's going to hold on to that, even if it means sacrificing our kids. If it means sacrificing our families, mm -hmm. our teachers, and he's doing so, and he's getting backing, obviously, from our friend Betsy, and um, you know, and and it leaves governors like, what what are we supposed to do here? You know, like, and he's you know he's he's stood on that ground of, if you don't open up, I'm not going to fund you. Yeah, you know, and he can't do that. But yeah. again, it just shows where his. His mentality is with going back to going back to school. I was about to say going back to work, but that's essentially what it is. It's going yeah. back to work. Right. So I don't know, man. Like it's it's very scary. Um, you know, today I was trying to envision myself being in a school with um, basically 600 people every day. Um, it's it's not good, and I would be lying if I said I haven't been looking for online jobs right now. Yeah. Or if I haven't tried to figure out ways to make money to save my life. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there are teachers that are feeling the same way. Yeah, and it just, I mean, putting the critical lens onto this too, like you you work in, a, in an urban school, your district, I, what's the demographic breakdown of your district? So the district is, um, well, it's changed a little bit, but um, it was like, it was like 60%. It's still about 60% students of color. Yeah. Um, and then we have mixed races on the rise quite a bit now. Yeah. So we have quite a we have quite a bit, and then the rest is white. But our school specifically is kind of a microcosm of Denver, as 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 a whole. So it's about 30% black, 30% Latino, 30% white, and then um, the rest is is Asian and, and mixed race. And so it's interesting just to see the the difference, um, not only in, in our cultures, but just the way that families are going to handle this. So today I actually got data um, of students returning. So normally we have about 900 students, and we're going to have 520 returning, mm. which I thought would be a lot less. Yeah. So and I think are, that that's of the students returning is it disproportionate to who's who's. I, Coming back face to face, and I haven't seen I haven't seen it the uh, the breakdown. That's just kind of like yeah. the general number right now. But um, it'll be interesting to break down that data just to see, you know, who's coming back. 
Yeah, and that's the thing, too. Like, I think if districts have, like, let's say a district has multiple options, right? They have a face-to-face -face option. They have an online option. Like, so I'm going to use a district that's nearby where I live. And they sent out something today. They have a face-to-face, -face and then they're doing an online academy, right? So parents can mm -hmm. choose. Yeah. The kids that are going to be impacted by this, because they're offering the face-to-face, -face, are the kids and families whose, par whose parents can't not afford to send them to school. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So because we're not doing anything to support the community, because we're not investing resources into figuring out how to support parents during this time that are that might need to make a decision to stay home, we're sending kids from essentially low lower socioeconomic background families, economically disadvantaged families into the fire. Right. And that's problematic on a multiple two to levels, right? So you have these districts making this decision and, and you know, and I'm assuming there are probably some families that um, might have more income depending on their political beliefs that will send their kids to school no matter what because that's just what they think they should do. But moreover, like, they at least have the choice. There are some families that don't have the choice. And I think if districts were to offer no choice and just be online, at least lives would be saved. Right. But then let's talk about the online platform because I think this is the yeah. interesting piece, right? So data suggests that online learning favors white men, uh, are rated higher by their teachers, participation is, is valued more. Um, whether it's asynchronous or synchronous, the research supports that white men ov overly um, do well in online learning um, given the effort levels. So even for poor, minimal effort, they still are rated higher in their performance compared to right. women, women of color, men of color, et cetera. So um, that's one of the things that's a disparity with online learning. That's a challenge with this, uh, but that can be that can be fixed, right? That element right. can be we can work with teachers to challenge their own bias and challenge some of their own things that they're bringing to this. Um, what are some of the other challenges that you see with online learning? Well, this Access. this was something that, yeah, I was going to ask you as well with some of your student teachers that, you know, we're trying to put into the field is, you know, I think number one is access to reliable internet. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are, these are the three main factors um, for a successful online experience. One is reliable internet. Number, number two is having a reliable device. Um, and then three is having space and time to be able to concentrate and do schoolwork. Yeah. Those three are huge. And so if one of those isn't working, it's not going to be a successful situation. Right. Be that of watching, you know, I have to watch my younger sister or my internet you know, is unreliable or I, I share a space, right? So if if one of those places is in Vibin, if one of those pieces is in Vibin, then yeah, the experience can change as far as the quality of education. But even with that said, um, you know, there's still other factors. For example, some parents work nights. Yep. And 
you know, or some parents obviously work during the day, but I, it, the, the, the family dynamic is so large that everybody's learning experiences is so different. And one, I don't think our district is prepared to understand that. And two, I'm not sure all of our teachers are equipped to, to meet those needs. That's so basically th- being ready and prepared around the clock. Let me throw this out there because I think I've had a lot of conversations. We actually start, started talking about doing a whole other endeavor about this of like rethinking or thinking differently about the educational space. Yeah. If we would have taken the last three months and said, you know what, thinking and actually looking at data, and they were making data-driven decisions about what was happening, and to say, you know, we're going to we're going to plan for 100% online, starting in. They would have probably started this in April, knowing that we could come back in the fall. But I think everyone was just hoping that we would be back in the fall without thinking right. about it, right? Yeah. Had we invested and said, we're going to take stimulus money and invest in our rural and urban spaces to build reliable internet as infrastructure for the community, because that increases information, it increases resources, right. it increases the ability for families and communities to thrive with the information age and technology, right? Two, we are going to equip all students in families with devices and find ways to do resource devices. I mean, districts do it all the time. We apply for grants right. and get devices yeah. for all, all kids in a building. Like there's there's ways that we can do that with resources that are available. Um, and then three, we're going to really work with our teachers to build a really great uh, online platform. We're going to start right. in October and we're going to spend August and September working with families and communities and um, guardians to figure out how we are going to lift our kids and provide yeah. liberatory educational practice for them. Because we know coming back to school face-to-face will continue to be problematic until we have this virus under control. Right. But we didn't do that. We missed that opportunity. No. So now, you know, kids that live in, again, well-resourced communities and that come from well-resourced homes, um, will thrive or at least be given opportunity to thrive whereas kids that um already are have so many barriers in the current educational system mm-hmm. will now have the same barriers but just in a different way in an online space right 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 but at least yeah. they're not being tested to see if we can do herd immunity which <laughs> right. has been debunked yeah yeah, I don't even think we're close to that number anyway. What, what's the herd immunity percentage? It's got to be like, well, yeah, 85%. I mean, the experts say 85, and then, you know, some are oh, like, yeah. if, even if we could do 40%, we would still be like a year and a half out at the current rate. Of oh, God. So scary. Yeah. But, no, I totally agree with you, uh, Tom. You know, like, you know, the what I noticed in, in, in the spring when we went online was there were some interesting things that I did notice. One was there were some there were some positives. Let me say this. There were some positives with online that I did see. I noticed that students that um, for whatever reason it was, they couldn't concentrate due to a social aspect mm-hmm. and they weren't turning in work. And this is at middle school level. 
And suddenly when they are a little bit more secluded and they're able to focus on their schoolwork, a good chunk of them were actually turning in some really nice stuff. Um, I also saw some of, of my teachers that struggled in the classroom do amazing online. Mm. Um, and I saw some that were really good in person struggle <laughs> with online. It was just interesting this, just to see how everybody adjusted from, you know, really great students or struggling students and, and really great teachers and struggling teachers kind of find their way in this digital world. And, you know, as a principal, it was just really interesting to watch um, develop. And I think you're right. Like if we had invested some serious money over the summertime into a stronger um, internet infrastructure for our country and then spend time training teachers for a couple of months on how to do this right and working with communities, I mean, it would have been a much better situation. But now here we are again faced with that whole, okay, Apollo 13, they're up there. Uh, we got to figure this out. We have a couple weeks. Let's go. And, you know, really it's, it's the teachers, our, our community, it's our kids that are suffering. So we started this when we were going to break down each of them. And I think we've come to the conclusion that all three options right now, given the current dynamic right. are bad. Um, the, the same challenges and barriers that exist for that are systematic, systematically embedded in our system for students of color will exist in both in all three formats. Those don't get alleviated. They might be exacerbated right. in some level on the online virtual in one way. In the face-to-face, -face, they're also exacerbated um, uh, in the face-to-face -face, uh, in a in a life-threatening way. Right, like so that's that's a whole different level, right? So I think I think what we're what we're talking about is regardless of now the outcome of another year of impacted schools by COVID, we need to seriously think about rethinking how we do education and learning. We know that it is only centering a particular voice in a particular frame and a particular identity of students who are given less barriers, who are forced faced with less barriers to excel and do well. So I think this is the opportunity for those that work in the field and those that are leaders to change the dynamic and to push that. And I think part of that is working with um, our legislators to rethink how we, because schools are typically state, like states have the authority over schools for the most part, um, rethink how we do schooling and right. re maybe rethink the concept of what school is. A little right. bit because it seems like, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the profession of education, uh, but I also am critical of it because I love it so much. And I think it's time that we evolve and we keep doing the same thing and we're just going to produce the same thing. Um, right. I don't know. Any final thoughts on this before we move on? To no, I think I think you're I think you're totally right. I think, you know, there is a fear of innovation. There's a fear to change status quo. I think we see that in the way that our country continues to vote. I think we see that in the way our country continues to, you know, run in the middle or even not really in the middle, but just to continue really poor habits because change is scary. Yeah. And I think people are afraid to do it because they want, they, they don't want to know, they don't want to try anything new that could potentially harm, but mm. they're realizing the harm is actually by not being innovative. And that means with our thinking, 
with the way we live with each other, with the way that we're thinking about education. I mean, all of it, nobody's willing to do anything because they think it's going to cause harm, but the harm is by not being innovative. And so that's, that's one thing I want to close with here before we move on to my favorite sport. Yeah, you're a huge football guy. I'm a big <laughs> football guy. College football, though, I really do like. I got to be honest. I do. Yeah, well, you're a Buffs fan. I am a big Buffs fan. I love yeah. the Buffs. So, which is not a harmful, offensive, racist, stereotyped mas- mascot. <laughs> no, it's not. No, I mean, I haven't talked to a Buffalo lately, but. Yeah. Uh, recently, the. Uh, I don't even call them the Washington, D.C. football team. There we go. Yeah, that's what they currently uh, are. They they don't have they finally have made the ownership has finally made the decision um, to um, no longer refer to their team name as the racist mascot that was pejorative to our indigenous population here in this country. So, um, which is a good move, but it wasn't. I you know, I don't think it was because of they're like oh they had an awakening moment. Right. I think you know this has been. I think the first um, patented the the former mascot in 1967. They were known as the Redskins since 1933, um, and uh, in 1971 the first um, controversy was f- formally filed um, of of the of the of the mascot, um, even though it had just debuted in the current. Uh, way that it was depicted so um so this has been going on for a long time um and you know the the defense was it was initially meant to convey um respect and reverent reverence for uh the native and indigenous yeah. culture which is total bullshit right like right it's just white people saying oh <laughs> even the framing of a mascot is problematic i don't know what are your thoughts yeah. josh well, I mean, I was going to ask you about this too. Like, when when I look at uh, old footage and pictures of, you know, football games where Washington played the Broncos, mm-hmm. I, I see people in the stands wearing headdresses and, you know, having tomahawks and doing the tomahawk chop. And, you know, even that in itself, like, okay, there's one one part of this is like, this is horrible. But again, and they're also just like in in its essence of it all, it's like, I don't want to say it's white people, but it, I mean, it really is, um, have grouped, have grouped all Native Americans as like this kind of singular experience. And that Tomahawk is this Native American thing. And it doesn't even matter if we do it specifically for this region. Like, like there's just so much unmindfulness that even if if they're if they're you know their point is we're trying to we're we're trying to show our appreciation right. or we're trying to you know show how much we love Native Americans you haven't given the time to even consider like all of the factors that play into the culture and so when people show up with headdresses it's like do you even know what that headdress is like right. is that even of a reference for that specific region like I don't know to me it's it's all bullshit. Um, and I, I don't mean to compare this in any way, but like, you know, when we talk about the Broncos and the Colts, people don't have a problem with that. They're like, oh, well, that's different. 
you know, I can tell the difference between a Brooklyn and a Colt, but people aren't willing to put in the time to even know the difference of like regional uh, tribes. And so it's all bullshit. Right. I, I disagree with that 100%, like you're saying. But I'm interested to see where they go now from this because <laughs> I was talking to some colleagues. They're like, well, what happens if they're like, you know, if they're like the, the Navajos? I'm like, oh God, like now, now we're, this is bad. They're not getting it. And I hope it's not, I hope, hopefully they're going in a, in a good direction as they try to decide on a mascot. So let me ask you this, like, what do you think would be the best process in naming a team that has historically done this to not only a sport in its community, but to indigenous people? Like what, what's the best move from here? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, an owner of a sports franchise. Um, I know I look and dress like one being a white guy. <laughs> drives a Subaru, um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I do have a, a, a nice espresso machine in my house, though. Um, you do? I do, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the – I think having um, – you know, one, I think they should – what they should do is they should write a check to some of the indigenous tribes in, in, in the U.S., um, almost like reparations in a sense of, you know, we've traced yeah. a caricature of your likeness and benefited right. from, you know, our horrible racist stereotype of you. And, you know, because money is the only language that really speaks anything in this country because of our capitalistic framework, we're going to give you money and support your efforts. And in addition, we're going to give you a seat on our board. Right. Like, I think the, like yeah. those things to me would be like, oh, OK, so they they're trying to do some something with this that it has been right. an activist. Um, and then, you know, I, I did see I don't know if it was a real article or not, but like uh, one of the leaders of the of, speaking of Navajo, uh, uh, the Navajo Nation um, said that they should rename their team the Code Talkers. Now, I don't know if that's true. I've tried to verify that. It's just well, I think that it, it's colonizer leadership again. It's that colonizer leadership, <laughs> you know. So I, I guess it's a thing. Like how do how do you? Then the real question is: as the NFL, which is a racist organization, and I'm going to name it. I've said it before on this podcast. Say it again. The NFL is a racist organization that has historically and currently puts black and brown bodies out for spectacle without giving them good health insurance they don't pay them guaranteed contracts like and i know people complain like oh they make millions of dollars but but the owners make so much more money off of, oh, off yeah. of their players and their athletes so yeah. much more money right right and right. and so i think it's the same thing like what is the power dynamic shift out of this yeah. so i think it's a good thing on its face it's like it's like the same thing as like renaming a street black lives matter i think it's a symbolic thing i think it's a good thing it takes away the characterization of it it takes away the horrible racist like depiction of our indigenous and native folks but if that's all it is then that's not enough because the the the, right. the, the root legacy of white supremacy and whiteness in the way the organization functions is still there Right. And they're doing it begrudgingly. Well, they're doing it because it's a, yeah. a good PR move. Well, I think you said it, too. I mean, there was a, a phrase that you just used in explaining this. You said, they're owners. Right. And and the fact that we have created and, and allowed NFL to 
call the people that run the team's owners and the players, you know, what they are, you know, that's, I think that's problematic, you know, like slave owners and, and that's automatically what I think of. And so there's just, there's so much restructuring that would need to happen in order for us to even begin to break some of the barriers that are needed. But I think this, this move, it's a good start. It's a good start, but this is never the end. And I hope, I know there are people like, okay, you got your mascot changed. Are you happy now? It's like, no, (laughs) no, because this isn't, I mean, the organization as itself, the game itself is racist. Right. Um, That's why it's your favorite game. I like, yeah, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Go Philip Lindsay. I love him though. He's amazing. Well, uh, what a meaty episode. Yeah. This is just full of meat. Full of meat. We went a little longer than I think we anticipated, but that's because we just had a lot to talk about. We still didn't even dig yeah. as deep as we probably could have. So No, no. Any final thoughts before we sign off, Josh? No, nothing. You know, I think right now is I think we should uh we should probably do another episode and, and update our listeners as, you know, on as 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 learning is constantly changing from moment to moment. And so I think right now in this current episode, this is where we are. And as we know, things change quickly. And so it'll be nice to document our progress as we make our way into the fall. And so I want to encourage our listeners to continue to stay with us as we talk through those changes. Yeah. And as always, if you have feedback for us, uh, you can find us at whitenessinamerica.com. Every episode, you can leave comments on our website. You can hit us up on Twitter, uh, which is Disrupt Whiteness with one S at the end of whiteness. Uh, you can email us at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. We look forward to your feedback. If you have critical analysis of the way that Josh and I broke down these topics, that's fine too. Uh, we look forward to that. But as always, it's a pleasure talking with you, Josh. Thanks for coming on tonight and uh, having this Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, so much fun. All right, we'll see you all next time.